We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. To Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read a section of verses 34 through 43. So we won't read the entire two chapters that we're covering today, but this gives us a good snapshot into it. And we'll probably pick up some a few verses here and there in chapter 11 as well as we go. But just as you're turning there, Acts 10, 34, remember last week we were looking in on what was happening in the life of Peter through the Holy Spirit working through him. And Peter had gone and he was able to be a part of healing people and even bringing someone from the grave, from death, back into life. Uh, but he said, this is, he said to the man he healed, Jesus the Christ heals you, right? And then as, as the woman came back to life, they, he presented her alive to her family and the people who were mourning, and they believed in Jesus. This was the power of Jesus, his spirit at work in an ordinary man. Peter is not a superhero, right? Uh, so that's where we last left off. And then he went to go kind of stay with a man named Simon, the leather tanner, we were told, for a few days. And so he goes to stay with this guy who's dealing with animal skins and hides and turning like cow skin in, into leather, right? It's a disgusting, smelly, uh, messy job. And a lot of people, he, he lived far off from the rest of the town by the water because a lot of people didn't want to be around that stench, but also because when you're touching dead things, you're considered ceremoniously unclean for a while, okay? So that's where we last saw Peter. And then just to give you some context of what we're skipping for a moment, we'll come back to, then we're introduced to this man named Cornelius. Cornelius is part of the Roman Empire. He, he's like a, not just a soldier, but some type of commander in the army in the Italian sector of the Roman military. And so he's a man of power, he's a man of high position, and he gets this vision that he's supposed to hear from Peter. He needs to hear something from Peter. And we're told Cornelius is a pretty good dude. He's actually like caring for the Jewish people in his community. He's not oppressing them. He prays to their God, Yahweh, but there's something he's still missing. And so the Spirit of God gives him a vision that he needs to hear a message. So they send for Peter at the same time. Peter gets this vision. It's kind of a crazy vision. We'll talk about it in a moment too. Uh, but it's a vision that leads him to go, okay, when these people show up and ask me to come to their house, I'm going to do it because he likely would not have gone on his own if the Spirit had not spoken to him. And so he goes and he starts sharing the message with them. That's where we're going to pick up. Acts 10, starting in verse 34. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen. 
not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear, receive, understand, and be transformed by your word this morning with the power of your spirit being here present within us. To the glory of the Father and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I didn't actually share an evidence of grace I wanted to share. Uh, This last week, Jonas, my oldest son, he FaceTimed me while I was in a meeting. And he goes, Dad, I'm sorry, I need to FaceTime you. I have to show you what Liam did. And I was like, okay, show me what Liam did. He goes, you just, you have to see this. And he starts bringing the phone around the house. He's like, Liam cleaned the entire house. He vacuumed. He cleaned this room over here. He did this. He even made your bed. And it like was really well made. I never make my own bed. I was like, that's incredible. So I came home. I, I talked to him. I was like, hey, bud, thanks for doing that. Like, what made you think of that? And he's like, well, we had this talk earlier in the week about responsibility. And I just thought, you know, this would be a good idea to surprise mom and dad by cleaning the whole house. And I was like, thank you, son. I really appreciate that. And he goes, don't thank me. Thank God, because he's the one who gives us good ideas. And I was like, oh, okay, sweet. So that was super, super sweet, just an evidence of, of God at work in my son, who's going to sit up right now so Asa has room to sit next to him. God at work in him, the spirit at work in his little heart. And then he goes, but I didn't mop, Dad. And I was like, Look, hey, you didn't have to do any of this. I didn't ask you to do anything. He goes, I didn't mop because mops are disgusting. They have so much germs and bacteria in them. How are you supposed to clean with those things? And I was like, he's got a really good point. And it made me start thinking about the different things that we think are clean that are actually really dirty and gross. And then, conversely, the things that we think are gross but actually might be more clean than you realize. Like, everyone talks about money being really dirty, right? It's touching so many different hands, and you don't know where those hands have been before that money gets to you. But kids, listen, you can lick your coins. You'll probably be fine. Don't do it, because your parents will be mad at me. <laughs> don't do it. Because the, the, at least coin money, uh, they actually, because they're hard metal surfaces, germs, they don't stay on it long, and actually... The properties in the metal are antimicrobial. It's a big word. What that means is the germs can't live on them long. They will die off, right? Paper money, probably a little more dirty, but they actually put an antimicrobial coating all over it too. But still, don't look at your money. Don't get me in trouble with mom and dad, okay? Uh, but it's a lot cleaner than we actually think it is. Many of you have probably heard of this one. Dogs' mouths, right? Dogs' mouths are supposed to be cleaner than human mouths. So, yeah, it it doesn't sound true. They stink really bad. I've seen some of the things my dog puts in her mouth. There's no way, right? But apparently, there's some kind of enzyme or something or the other scientific that lives in a dog's mouth that's different than a human mouth that kills all that bacteria and all those germs way better. Probably good because they put weird things in their mouths, right? Here's another one for you. Instead of eating off of your dinner table tonight, why don't you try eating off of your toilet? 
No, just kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Again, you're going to give me trouble. No, don't do it. But toilets, studies have shown, are way more likely to be clean and free of germs than your cutting board. In fact, your cutting board likely has 2,000 more times fecal matter on it. Ask, ask your parents later what fecal matter is. So that's, you know why? It's because like you're thinking about this toilet needs to be clean. It's dirty. But there's lots of people walking around who didn't wash their hands properly who are touching all kinds of things, and you don't think about it. I honestly, this is really bad, I don't remember the last time I wiped down my kitchen table. Just going to put that out there. Because we ask our kids to do it. And you know what? I haven't been monitoring it. And I'm eating at that thing, right? Your toilet is probably a whole lot cleaner. But when you talk about like eating your meal off of your toilet, that just sounds disgusting, doesn't it? And that kind of like gross, visceral reaction I'm giving you right now is probably similar, similar to the reaction Peter would have had when he got his vision from the Lord. But not just because it's gross. He would have had it on a moral level. Like, there's no way I'm going to do this. So while Cornelius is getting his vision that, hey, I want you to send for someone named Peter. He's staying with a guy named Simon who's a leather tanner. Peter's getting a vision from the Lord at the same time. And what it is is he's actually hungry and he's waiting for someone to prepare food. He goes up on the rooftop and he kind of goes into this trance for a moment. He gets this vision and there's this like cloth coming down out of heaven, being lowered down with all kinds of creepy, crawly animals on it. Every kind of animal that crawls on the dust. And the Lord says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter goes, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean in my life. I'm not going to do it. Like, this is totally in step with Peter's whole demeanor all throughout his time walking with Jesus for three years, right? Jesus will say something like, hey, i got to die. And Peter goes, no, 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 you don't. Don't say that, right? And Peter's always like, no, no, this is how it's going to be. And then Jesus has to put him in check. So he goes, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that, right? Remember, Jesus is like, hey, uh, you guys will all deny me before this is over. And Peter goes, no, not going to happen. And Jesus is actually like, actually, you're going to deny me three times, Peter, before this is all said and done, before the rooster crows. And then to kind of reset all that, in a sense, to redeem that, to restore that for Peter, Jesus, when he appears resurrected after he came back from death to life, he shows up to Peter and he asks him three times, do you love me? In this vision, Peter, who's like, no, Lord, I'm not going to do what you just said, three times, three times the Lord goes, Peter? Listen up. <laughs> it's like over and over again, Peter needs this repetition, right? And so if you ever feel like you have to tell someone something over and over again, kids, you got to tell your parents something over and over again, they just don't get it, right? Or you could reverse that. Then know that Peter, the apostle, who walked with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, he needed the same thing. The Spirit of God is giving him a vision, saying something. He's like, no, 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 no. So three times, God is so patient with us, isn't he? Three times, he says, hey, what God has declared to be clean, let nobody else say is unclean. This vision ends, and Peter doesn't eat any of that stuff. The point is not necessarily about now you can eat whatever you want, right? Now, a lot of times when we think about foods that were unclean to the Jewish culture, because this is what was going on in Peter's head, he's going, Actually, there's laws in Leviticus saying not to eat some of those animals that you're showing me in this vision. He had good reason to say no. 
And then we, a lot of times, like today, American Christians, we say, oh, that's over with, and now we can because of Jesus. And maybe the reason why they couldn't eat it before was like sanitary reasons, right? Like they didn't have refrigerators back then, and they, they couldn't take care of and clean the animals the same way. And so God was looking out for their health. But what doesn't work about that is Peter, when he got this vision, still doesn't have a refrigerator, right? When he's sitting on top of this rooftop in Joppa, he, he still doesn't have a refrigerator. They still didn't have the same methods of cleaning the animals that we do today. So there's something deeper going on there. God was giving him this vision to show him not just necessarily about food, but listen, I'm about to do something with the people all over the world. And some of these people you have called unclean your entire life. You've decided that they do not belong in the family of God. And I'm telling you, what God has declared to be clean, let no one call unclean. This vision is it's representative. The animals are representative of the humans. And it's given Peter this license to go, okay, I'm like by Jewish law, I should not go into Cornelius' home. I could get in big trouble for that. But God himself just told me to go. So I'm going to go. So he shows up. And he even tells him that when he gets there. Hey, I'm not supposed to be here. You're, you're considered unclean. But God gave me a vision, so here we are. So tell me what you want. <laughs> and Cornelius goes, I got a vision too. Now to, to kind of unpack some of this vision and what's going on here, I want to look a little bit more at the animal stuff. Okay, I want to look a little more at the clean and unclean. And by the way, the clean and unclean, again, it doesn't mean sanitary, not sanitary. It doesn't even mean like righteous and unrighteous. What it, what's going on here is creating a space where people are entering into community with God. That's the clean space, so to speak. And so if we think about all the way back at the beginning of the story, kids, what's that first down arrow re represent in our story? Go ahead and say it out loud. What's our down arrow in our symbols? Creation. Good job, Asa. At the very beginning of the story of the Bible, the very beginning of the world, at creation, what God does is he creates the whole world, right? And he calls it good. But he kind of sections off a certain part of it that was really good for humans to live in. He creates this kind of like area where it's clean from the wild and waste of the rest of the earth. He tames it. He makes it inhabitable. He allows the humans to live there and to care for it. And then even within that area, there's a garden called Eden. And in that garden, it's like perfect communion with God exists right there. And what does God tell them? There's one thing they're not supposed to do, right? Any kids, help me out. What's the one thing the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were not to do in the garden? Yeah. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of what? The one the snake told them to eat from, yeah. The tree of life they could eat from, they could eat from all they want and live forever with God. Then there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Something that was allowing them to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. Not to listen to what God's telling them is right and wrong. And they eat from that, don't they? So they eat something that was technically, we could say, unclean. It was not for them. It was a thing that separated them from relationship and communion and closeness with God. 
So the whole story from that point is God trying to pursue his people and bring them back into nearness with him. God himself moving toward them. So even though they were exiled, they were sent away from the garden, they were no longer welcome there because of their rebellion. They were out now in the wild and waste of the world where there's all kinds of things going on and, and there's all kinds of wild and waste in their own hearts and they start even murdering one another. Right? And they start fighting against one another, blaming one another. All kinds of selfishness comes out. Even though that's all going on, God still is at work to create a space, a clean space that he can enter into and come to them. And in the early parts of the Bible, in the Old Testament, in this crazy book no one likes to read called Leviticus, that shows up in something called the tabernacle. That God has them build this like temple-type space where he can come and be near them. And there's all kinds of things he tells them to build in there that remind us of what the garden was like. He says, use topaz and these types of you know, rocks and minerals, and all these things that remind you of things you heard about in the garden. And the way that they would design it, it was like entering into where that tree of life was. But there are certain things that the people had to do because that wild and waste, that uncleanness, that mess was in each of our hearts. There are certain things they had to do in order to enter into that clean space where God was. And so one of those things was around what you could eat and not eat. That's interesting, right? Because that was how things all went wrong in the first place. You could eat from any other tree here, but don't eat from this tree. One of those things was under sacrifice, because when you do eat from this tree, you will surely die. And God was creating a way where actually the death of another, of a blameless one, would allow you to enter into relationship with him, to find life. And so God gave all these laws about what uh, animals you should eat and not eat, and which animals should be sacrificed to him. This word is actually offering that's used. And that word offering doesn't just mean to give something over. It actually is a word in the Hebrew that says to bring near. Bring near. Think about that. What is God saying there? He is trying to bring nearness between him and his people once again. He's trying to draw near to them, and he's inviting them to draw near to him. That was what the offering was for. And so by the time Peter gets this vision, there's been all kinds of, there's been years and years and years of laws and regulations and ways humans have said, hey, let's make sure we don't mess this up, and lots of misunderstandings. It's interesting, right? That still goes on today, lots of misunderstandings of the Bible. We still have that a lot going on in this room even. But, because we're human, but Jesus shows up and he says, let me explain to you what this is really all about. Let me explain to you what this is really all about. There's a nearness that God is desiring for his people. And it's not just for you, Peter. And it's not just even for the people who are related to you. It's not just even for your nation. But it's for all the people. God is desiring this nearness. What Israel was supposed to be as they were going through these rules and these laws, even with foods and sacrifices and offerings, was to be a people who were inviting others into that. A royal priesthood is what the Bible calls it. Right? So they were supposed to represent the king of all creation, God, and as priests, bring nearness for other people. Bring them near to the God 
that they were worshiping. And so as, as they were doing that, they forgot that side of the job. They forgot that role. And they just said, this is how we'll set ourselves apart. But God instituted all these things, yes, to be set apart so you would look distinct from the rest of the world, but also to draw them in at the same time. And then one of the things that they would do is they would actually, for the offerings of these animals, they would kill them. It was a very gross, messy thing, right? The thing that God called clean was very messy. (laughs) They would kill them. They would splatter the blood of these animals. And then they had a, a sacrificial offering where they would actually burn it. And this was like, there's five different types of offerings we don't have time to go into, but this was the one that seemed the most wasteful. Because other ones, the priests could eat the meat. Sometimes the, the people who were doing the offering could even take some. But in this one, it was like, no, you burn the whole thing. This whole animal that you could have fed your whole family on for weeks is being burnt up. And it says that it's a fragrant offering an aroma that would go up to the heavens that God would receive. What was going on down on the ground for the humans? It stunk. It it smelled. It was gross. It looked vile. It was death. But what was going up to God as a sacrifice, as an offering, was a sweet aroma. It's interesting, in Acts 10, when we find out about Cornelius, as he's about to have his vision, God comes to him and he says, Cornelius, your good deeds have come up to heaven to God as a sweet aroma. What he's saying is, the way you're living your life has become a sacrifice. You have every right in this world, Cornelius, to take your power and wield it against other people to get what you want. And instead, you've seen that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is worth following and obeying. And even though they won't let you in the temple, even though they won't let you bring sacrifices, even though they won't even come into your home, you have devoted your life to following this God. And you have treated them with care. That has become a living sacrifice that has come up as a sweet aroma to God. Now God's working in Cornelius' life already before Peter shows up. And listen, God starts working on Peter's heart too before he goes over there. But there's still something missing. Cornelius, his heart's in a good place. We're like Luke, the way Luke tells about him in the story, we're supposed to like him. He's doing good deeds. He's following God. You know what he doesn't know yet? He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's not filled with the Spirit. God has been working in his life already, but God chooses to partner with a regular man named Peter in order to bring the fullness of salvation to Cornelius. Do you know that God just showed up and gave a vision and spoke to Cornelius? He could have done the same thing he did with Saul, right? He could have just shown up and said, I'm Jesus, Cornelius. Worship me. Follow me. And he would have been filled with the Spirit there. But God chooses to partner with an ordinary human to do this work and to carry it out and to bring salvation. How gracious is this, right? The the God who said, man, these humans blew it. They rebelled against me. They've moved away from me into unclean space. And he continues to pursue them and come toward them and create clean space for them. But not only that, he chooses to continue to partner with them. You'll still be my representatives. You'll still be a royal priesthood. You will still show the world what I'm like. 
God's inviting Peter into that. And so while he's sharing there at Cornelius' house, there's all kinds of people there. There's his servants there. Like he's a, he's a powerful man. His servants are there. Other soldiers are there. His family's there. And Peter starts sharing. And while that's happening, the Spirit of God shows up. Go to chapter 11 real quick with me. I'm going to read verse 15. In chapter 11, we pretty much up to this point get a verbatim retelling of what happened in chapter 10 because the people following Jesus, following the way of Jesus in Jerusalem, hear about Peter going to Cornelius' home, going to a Gentile's home, and they're livid. They're like, this is not cool. You can't do this. So they bring him before a council to question him about it. Peter, what are you doing going into this man's home? You know that's unlawful. So Peter starts retelling the whole story. And once he gets to this point, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them. Not the Jewish people in the room. Came down on all the other people they thought were unclean. Just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he has also gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent. I love that. It was a mic drop moment. They had nothing to say in response. And they glorified God, saying, so then, God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. That word Gentiles, you guys, it just means every other nation. All the ones they saw as unclean. There were the Jews in their mind, and then there was everybody else. Literally, that word translates to nations. So what they're saying is, God has opened up his way of salvation, this gift of life, the gift of the Holy Spirit, making family with all people everywhere. Just as Revelation will say, every tribe, tongue, and nation. God desires for all people, all types of people, all people with different backgrounds, with different histories, to come together and form a unified family because the Spirit is bringing us together. But it came through hearing the good news of Jesus. It doesn't happen any other way. Cornelius was a good guy. God was working in his life, but he was not saved. He did not know eternal life. He did not have the Spirit upon him. He did not have the same kind of power dwelling within him that Peter had. He did not know the full joy and faith and hope until he heard about Jesus. Cornelius' good deeds were rising up as an aroma that was pleasing to God. But you know the thing that saved him? It was the good deeds and the aroma of another one. Go with me to Ephesians. I think we have this on the screen, Patrick. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul later writes this. He says, be imitators of God. This is to all of us who say we follow Jesus. Be imitators of God. Just like we saw last week, Peter was doing all these things that Jesus was doing. We are to imitate him as dearly loved children. Right? Like when you see your child doing the things you do because they love you, because they look up to you, because they want to be like you. We have a father that we're to look to, to be like, and to imitate. And walk in love as Christ also loved us, and gave himself for us. Do you hear that? The nearness offering 
that's set up in Leviticus. Jesus becomes this once and all for us. As Christ also loved us, gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Jesus' death, his sacrifice, it's not just, man, I mean, it sounds like a brutal story when you don't really know it, right? Like, why would this God want you to kill animals, slaughter animals? And then why, why does a, this perfect human, like he's never done anything wrong, have to die in order for us to be made right with God? It's, it's a nearness. He's creating this clean space to draw us near. Jesus' death is actually what brings nearness to God. It's what brings us life. And his, his death rises up, just like those animals would have when they were burnt. His death rises up as a fragrant offering to God, a pleasing aroma. And here's the thing. Jesus conquered death. You would have to keep killing animals over and over and over and over again. Sin again, got to go kill another animal. But Jesus, because he lives forever now, a living sacrifice, he lives forever he will eternally be our sacrifice. He will eternally be our fragrant offering to God. That whenever you sin, you don't have to go atone for it. You go to Jesus, and Jesus' fragrant offering goes to God on your behalf, and God says, I'm pleased with you. That's the way that works. And you have nearness to God now because of Jesus when you are in him, when you are enveloped in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the power of his spirit comes upon you. Nearness to God is available to you, but it's also available to all the world if they would trust in him. To your neighbor, to your coworker, to the person you really can't stand, to the person in your family who you've written off by now, kids to your brother, your sister, to your mom and dad, everybody. God desires for them to see Jesus and to accept him as their fragrant offering the pleasing aroma that allows nearness to God. We're going to go to the table together today. I know we don't have it set up like we usually do in a more kind of official, fancy-looking way at these tables. But we're just, we're just going to break bread. We're going to share food together. But listen, as we do that, when Jesus shared a meal with his followers, he said, when you do this, I want you to remember my body broken for you when you break bread. I want you, as you drink, from this cup, remember my blood poured out for you. And that's what we do when we enter into this meal together. For those of us who are uh, not in Jesus, maybe if you're here, like you're just eating food, okay? That's great. And it'll pass through you and it'll come and go, and then you got to do it again. But for those of us who are in Christ, we know we're intentionally entering into this to say Jesus has fed us and nourished us once and for all. And it happened through his death, through the spilling of blood, but you know what Scripture says about blood? Blood doesn't represent death in Scripture. God says that life is in the blood. That actually when they were making these offerings and sacrifices, what it was doing was it was representing life now available to them. Jesus' blood, when he goes to his death, actually his blood covering us, it shows that we have new life. So when we go to the table, we remember that. We take the cup. We remember we have life now because of Jesus' blood. And then we celebrate the resurrection. And that one day he's returning, and we will sit and feast at a table together with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's the hope that we have. That's the joy that we look forward to. Amen?